All right, good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> good afternoon. All right. It's a good Sunday. Hey, what's up? Watch this mic, man. Thanks. Who used this mic last before my wife? <laughs> uh, make sure we watch this mic. All right. Hey, Matthew, we good? All right. Very good. Uh, our ministry team to Las Vegas, San Francisco, as you guys saw in the video and the testimony, uh, we had an amazing time. It was such a privilege and a joy to be able to partner with God in what he's doing, uh, a new work that he's doing over there in Las Vegas, uh, to be able to see how wonderfully he's building up uh, young adult ministries out in the Bay Area. And so it was a, a really wonderful time. One cool thing that happened in Las Vegas was when we got to Las Vegas, I asked people, you know, what's the weather like over here? And people were like, well, it's really dry. It's really hot. In fact, in recent weeks, they had the record high temperatures in Las Vegas. I turn up my mic. And they also said that it never rains. So out of 365 days of the year, they said it rains maybe about five times, ten times. I don't know if that's accurate. All right? But they were just trying to exaggerate that it hardly ever rains in Las Vegas. So I was like, all right, so we better get ready, you know, have our water bottles, keep hydrated. And then the cool thing happened was on the first night of uh, the weekend services on Friday night, I was preparing for my message and just praying in the uh, pastor's room. And all of a sudden the lights went out. And then I heard this big thunder. And then it just started raining. It's my best rain sound effect. And... When we went home, and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit moved powerfully that night. Give me more mic. Give me more mic. The Holy Spirit moved powerfully that night. And as we went home after that night, there was flash flooding all over Las Vegas. And so I asked some of the guys, you know, is this, is this normal? They were like, no, we haven't really seen this. And then on Saturday, we started the service, and it rained again. It rained even more. That there was a rain leak within the sanctuary and was dripping into the sanctuary carpet. And so they had to get buckets and put it under the leak. And when we went home that night, once again, flash flooding flooding everywhere. Not everywhere, but it was like in spots (laughs) where they have bad drainage. And so it was really cool. I just felt like it was um, God's kind of prophetic sign accompanying us. That he's pouring out fresh living water onto Las Vegas. And our prayer for the city is that they will have a new reputation. It will no longer be known as Sin City. But it will be the city that people travel to from all over the world to get their sins washed. To go forth. And that the entertainment industry of Las Vegas will be shifted from one of just sinfulness and prostitution to one of family entertainment. Amen? God can do it. You know, that's how New York City churches pray for Times Square. At one point, Times Square was filled with peep shows, strip clubs, you know, all these X, triple X rated video stores, whatever, you know. And the New York City churches started praying for Times Square to be changed into a family environment. And I kid you not, when I was a student at New York University back in 2000, I literally saw Times Square being completely transformed before my eyes. 
And by the time I graduated from NYU, there was Disney everywhere. <laughs> Disney store here, Disney store there, and strip clubs. They were like, hey, well, this is bad for our business. And they just started shutting down, and they all moved out. I believe what God has done for Times Square, he will do for the city of Las Vegas. And for those who you lived a backslidden life and you have come back to the Lord now, one day you will say to your kids, this is where I lived my backslidden life. But now the Lord has redeemed this city and I'm bringing you kids out here to show you how God has transformed this city. I want you to turn to Psalm 116, verse 5. I'm going to look at that, past, look at that verse today. I'm going to preach from that verse. Psalm 116, verse 5. How many guys, you're ready to hear the the word of the Lord? Come on, look at Psalm 116, verse 5. In the ESV, it says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. In the NIV, it says, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Now, that Hebrew word can be translated either way. It kind of carries a similar meaning. Our God is a God who is merciful. Our God is a God who is full of compassion, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That is the reputation that God wants to be known by because that's who he is. That's his character. Our God is a God of compassion. Turn to your neighbor and tell him our God is a God of compassion. When I was in the Bay Area and we did the Living Hope Young Adults Retreat, my last message that I preached there was about holding fast to prophecy. That if you receive prophetic words from a man of God or a woman of God, to write it down, to record it, to release faith for it, and to wait for its fulfillment because it will not delay. It will surely come. So on the airplane back to Seoul, I decided to apply my own message to my life. And I started to listen to a prophecy that I got on Saturday, May 25th of this year. It was right after New Philadelphia's churchwide retreat. And Pastor Benjamin prophesied over me. Stephen Beauchamp, the other guest speaker, he prophesied over me. And my spiritual mama, Pastor Sonny Robinson, she also prophesied over me. And on the airplane, I transcribed the prophecy word for word. And as I did that, I just felt like God's spirit highlight Pastor Sonny's prophecy for me. And so Pastor Sonny's prophecy, I'm going to read it for you. It went like this. This is Pastor Sonny. I'm not going to try to impersonate her. All right, this is Pastor Sunday's prophecy. She said, I just keep hearing, my son, you are a man of faith. My son, you are a man of faith. And then she said some other words. 
And then she said, but I just want to release you into this new season where many years you've disconnected yourself from the emotions. And it's not that you don't like emotions, but it's just that there's a brain pathway in your brain. When you were young, you saw emotion as weakness. Hey, fix this mic, Eugene. I'm going to lose my voice. You got you to turn up the mic. Or turn down the limiter. All right. I'm sorry about that. You guys are doing a great job, by the way. You guys are doing an awesome job. <laughs> and Pastor Sonny continued. You saw emotion as weakness. And your strength came out. And you were able to overcome trauma. Any difficult situations in your mind, you were able to overcome and walk as a strong man of God. And in this new season, God is going to shift you into a season where God is going to connect your mind to your heart. Where you're going to start to sense emotions. Hallelujah. I'm excited about that. So by this authority that God has given us in the precious name of Jesus, we just activate you into this new season where you have access to your emotions and you're going to start feeling the presence of God. They go hand in hand. And being that man of faith, now you're going to be that man of manifestation. It's a new level. It's a new level. And I just release you into that new season in Jesus' name. You know, I have been sharing with them on the, on the trip in May when they came that when I minister in the church and when I go and when I'm invited as a guest speaker and I go and preach and I invite people up and I pray for them a lot of times I don't sense anything you might be surprised but I don't actually always feel anything a lot of times or most of the time I don't feel anything and I just get a prompting or I feel like I'm getting some kind of prompting sometimes I'm on sometimes I'm off and I'll just invite people up and people will come up and I'll pray for them and boom, just they just get hit with the power of God. It looks like electricity is just circulating through their body. And I pray for someone else and they'll just start crying. And they're just, just all this emotion will be released. I pray, I pray for someone else and, and they just start shaking or falling under the power of God. And through all of this, a lot of times, I don't feel a darn thing. You know? And so I was telling Pastor Benjamin and Pastor Sonny how I get jealous of people who are more spiritually sensitive. For example, I get jealous of my wife. Because a lot of times she'll just be in the presence of the Lord and it won't even be that powerful of a prayer meeting. It won't even be that powerful of a worship. She'll just start crying. And I look over at her and I'm like, man, I wish I had more of that. Or she'll be ministering at the altar and she'll just hug somebody. She just start crying on their behalf. And she just feel like the presence of the Holy Spirit on her body. She'll just sense the nearness of God. A lot of times I don't, I don't feel that. And so I just kind of was concluding in my mind, maybe I should just, uh, just accept that. Maybe this is just not my plight in life. This is just not the way God's made me. But... Pastor Benjamin and Sonny challenged that. They were like, no. I cannot believe that you don't feel the presence of God on a regular basis. How the heck do you live your Christian life? Because <laughs> both of them, they feel the presence of God. 
They not, may not feel it all the time, but they feel it regularly. They're like, no, you got, you got to feel his presence. And don't get me wrong, I felt his presence. They're just like once every three years, two years. But you know, they don't leave enough of a mark on me, all right? But they were like, no. We believe that God's going to take you into a new season where you're going to feel his presence. You're going to sense his presence. And after they share that, a couple days later is when Pastor Sonny prophesied this. And upon careful reflection, I realized that Pastor Sonny's prophecy over me is actually quite accurate. It's true. For many years, I have felt very disconnected from my emotions. Uh, Once again, it doesn't mean I was numb the entire time. But overall, I've had difficulty being in touch with my own emotions. And therefore also being sensitive to others. When I'm leading like an inner healing or deliverance session, I'll be able to identify with someone's pain and just cry with them and minister to them. But on a day-to-day course of life, when, I, when I'm not ministering, I've had trouble being sensitive uh, to people's emotions and to my own emotions. Yeah, turn me down a little bit. Y'all going, going crazy back there. And so if I had to also be really real with myself, I'll admit that deep inside, there's a pathway in my brain that says emotion is weakness. When she pointed that out, that was bold. Because she, she could have been off on that. But when she pointed that out, man, I really examined my heart. I realized, you know what? She's exactly right. I do think that. So this whole week, as I've been looking back, I try to narrow down in my life why I am not sensitive to my own emotions and why I'm not sensitive to the emotions of others. And this is what I found. Four things that I can find so far. Four things. Four things why I'm not that sensitive. Number one, it's because I have what's called a powerful choleric personality. (laughs) So for those who are familiar with the four temperament model... I'm the goal-oriented person. I'm the go-getter. I work harder. I don't always work smarter. I just work harder. I think that's the the solution. It's just go, go, go. Um, In a moment of emergency or crisis, you want to have me on your team. Because I'm a quick thinker. I have the ability to stay calm. You have my wife on your team, you might have a little trouble. All right? I'm playing. I'm playing, honey. You do great. You do great in emergency situations. But, but number one is because I'm choleric. I'm naturally not that sensitive. Okay? But that doesn't mean that I can't be in touch with my emotions. That doesn't mean that I can't be sensitive to the emotions of others. So what are some other contributing factors? And number two, secondly, it's definitely my childhood. So... I try to identify certain key moments in my childhood where it made me emotionally numb or caused me to get into a habit and a pattern of being emotionally numb. And so I found some incidents. When I was seven years old, first incident, my family was too poor to move to the f- suburbs of Philadelphia, like, like Pastor David on here. So we lived in urban city Philadelphia. 
And we moved into a, a poor black neighborhood. It was called Adams Run Apartments back then. And my parents had just bought me a skateboard. Everybody had a skateboard back then. There was those big old thick ones, not the, not the skinny ones that cool people ride like Peter Jacob. It was a big, big old fat ones. And we didn't really stand on it. We just sat on it. And we just, <laughs> we just pushed each other around. We didn't have TV, MTV back then. Um, and I remember I was just kind of just like riding on it, just, just like not going anywhere. I was just kind of talking with my cousins and with some Korean friends that had uh, unfortunately also moving to the neighborhood. And there were like, you know, six of us or something. We were just like sticking together. And then all of a sudden, my head hit the concrete. And I looked behind me, and there was this big black fella. And he was running away with my skateboard. And so I remember I got up, I chased him down, and I tried to like, like choke him, get him on, and he just threw me off. And I just got, got right back up, and I tripped him, and he fell. And the skateboard went flying. And so I went over there and I grabbed the skateboard. And he came over and he started kicking me in my head. Kicking me in my... I'm seven years old. This guy's probably uh, 14, 15 years old. Much bigger gentleman. And he's just violently... This is life in the city. He violently just kicking me, punching me. And then at one point he got the skateboard from me and he started beating me with my own skateboard. And as he's trying to walk away, he thought I, he thought I was done. But no, I rise again. <laughs> Seven years old, there was a fire inside of me. Anyway, he tried to walk away, and I just went and I tripped him again. And I took the skateboard, I just held on. And he was just kicking me, hitting me. And all of a sudden, I remember it stopped because my uncle started coming out of the building. And so he ran away. And I remember I sat on the sidewalk. And I was crying. And I was hurt. I was bruised. I was embarrassed. I was traumatized. Why would anyone do this to some other human being? And my friends and my cousins, none of them comforted me. In fact, my sadness turned to anger as I sat there with nobody comforting me. And I said, why didn't you do something about this? Why did y'all just sit there and watch me? How come none of y'all helped me? And I was just thinking that. I was sobbing by myself. And I think eventually somebody tried to like comfort me and just be like, Hey, are you okay? Hey, you alright? I just refused to be comforted. Just get off me. I said it in Korean though, because I didn't know English back then. <laughs> Shit up! Another incident was in fourth grade. Uh, during lunch recess, or during lunchtime, uh, another black kid named Cornelius, he was, a, he was a violent guy. He was always getting into fistfights. And he picked on me. And I stood up for myself. And when I stood up for myself, when I turned my head to look another way, he sucker punched me right on my forehead. Pop! Socked me. And my head went like, blue like this, you know? And in Philly, whenever a fight breaks out, I mean, people just gather around. They just want to see a good fight. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like animalistic instinct. It's weird. All right, so if you're ever in Philly and you get into a fight, don't expect anybody to help you. They will instigate it to keep it going so they can see a good fight. But anyway, everybody started gathering around. They're like, come on, hit him back, hit him back, hit him back. And I was just so stunned. And the lunch aide, uh, one of the lunch aides, 
they, she grabbed me and she, she took me to the nurse. And Cornelius just walked off, you know. And I remember when I got to the nurse, you know, she checked my head. Nothing was wrong. It's just a big old, big, old, big old bruise right here. Big old bruise. And when I sat by my fourth grade homeroom outside the nurses, it was kind of close to each other. I was sitting on the bench. I just started crying. And I was just a fourth grader. I got punched in the, in the forehead for, for nothing. I didn't do anything. He was just picking on me. He was trying to bully me. I just started crying and crying. And I just wanted to be comforted. But once again, nobody comforted me. And then my Trinidad teacher, fourth grade teacher named Mrs. Pegas. I remember she came over to me and she said in her Trinidad accent, What you doing now? What you crying for? And I was Cornelius hit me. Oh, that little punk, he hit you, huh? Hey, don't let him see you crying now. You got to be tough. Why, what you crying for? You got no reason to be crying. And she just, and she just told me to toughen up. And I was like, And I, and I just suppressed all of that need for comfort. I just suppressed all of my anger. And I just suppressed it. And then a couple, like one minute later, the whole classroom started walking in. And they were all looking at me to see how I would respond to Cornelius punching me in my forehead. And I just sat there and I looked all tough. And I pretended nothing happened. And I just went into the line. It was size order, so I was usually in the front. And uh, we just went into the classroom, and I just looked, and I showed no emotion whatsoever. And I remember all my, all my friends being like, oh, yo, 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 look, look, check it out. Yo, suck young, yo, 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 he's tough. Look at him. Look at him. That's my Korean name. Yo, suck is, suck is mad tough. Yo, look at him. It didn't phase him one bit. Yo, Cornelius, did you hit him hard? He said, yeah, yeah, I popped him. I popped him. Well, it don't look like he, he popped him. He looked like he ain't do nothing to him. And I remember thinking that. I was like, oh, yeah, Mrs. Pegas was right. I can't be showing that emotion. And that actually put in my mind this thought. Emotions, weakness. Can't let Cornelius see me weak. You know, a year later, it was one of the biggest after-school fights in the history of my elementary school. <laughs> it was between me and Cornelius. In fifth grade, I fought him toe-to-toe. We did like a, like a six, seven-minute fight just, just going all out. And I held my own, and we ended up in a draw. Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that. <laughs> I'm not doing nothing. I'm just, that's pride. That's just pride. I mean, that's, that's pride. <clears throat> so Mrs. Pegas. Mrs. Pegas helped me, but at the same time, she failed to do something for me. It, I think it was fine for her to tell me to toughen up. But what I needed was comfort. And then for her to synchronize my emotions, kind of talk me through it and say, hey, he didn't really hurt you that much. This is not that big of a deal. And comfort me to a place where I will toughen up. But instead, she just told me to toughen up. Another incident from my childhood is my famous karate teacher. African-American ex-Marine Sensei Tyrone Wiggins. All right, Sensei Wiggins was my karate teacher from 6th to 8th grade. He used to teach at the recreation center in Olney. Uh, there were a lot of karate schools that were popular at that time. 
and you would have to pay like $100 a month, $200 a month. The recreation center's karate school was free. So it was just a bunch of ghetto kids that couldn't afford anything else and try to stay out of trouble. We would go out to Tyrone Wiggins' dojo and we would learn us some karate. And it was some hardcore karate because he got trained in Okinawa. And his, his, uh, his sensei was like this world famous Okinawa sensei. Anyway, I remember when I was taking karate lessons with Tyrone Wiggins, Sensei Wiggins would always talk to other students. And whenever they would cry, he would say, Get up, son! Why are you crying? Why are you crying? What you gotta cry for? Get up! Be tough! Be tough, you're a warrior! And he never said that to me. But he said that to a lot of my other classmates. Because they were just crybabies. <laughs> but when he, whenever he said that, it continued to reinforce in my mind, emotions, weakness. Sensei Wiggins wants you to be tough. You can't show no emotion. When you go to a karate tournament and you, you, get, you get into the heat of things and the person punched you or, or, or kicked you in the stomach, you can't start crying. That's the time for you to fight back. That's for the time for you to focus and concentrate on your son and get them back. Now, those three incidences came to mind, incidents came to mind when I thought about where did I get this concept that emotion is weakness? Where, when did I start going wrong and start suppressing my emotion and making myself numb? Those three incidents came up, but a fourth incident came up that I rarely talk about. It was actually right after we immigrated to America, and about five months after we immigrated, it was time for me to go to first grade. So I had gone to kindergarten, but it was only like three hours long, and a lot of times you just play and eat. And take a nap. Kindergarten was great, right? And I didn't learn nothing in kindergarten. I don't even know if I want to send my children to kindergarten. But anyway, um, no, we will. Uh, I remember it was the first day of first grade, and I was so scared. I was so, I was so scared. I didn't speak any English. I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was going to pee on my pants because I didn't know how to say, how, how do I go to the bathroom? And my mom taught me toilet, but I couldn't remember the word. I was just scared. I remember my father, he escorted me to first grade. And he took me to the doorway of my first grade homeroom. And all of the students, they filed into the classroom and took their seats. And I was the last one outside. And I just started crying. <laughs> my dad was like, You know me, where were so? And I was just crying. And my dad just told me to shut up, suck it up, go in. Why are you crying? He kept saying, Where were Right, and so he connected it for me. A, a man doesn't cry. Boys don't cry. Emotion is weakness. I realized when I really reflected, that was one of the first moments in which that mindset was passed down to me. I didn't watch enough movies to know this. I wasn't interacting with enough other boys my age to know this. My dad said that day, 
pretty much emotion is weakness. And I, I realized that he has simply passed down a mindset he had received. Because in his childhood, nobody comforted him either. In fact, that's still the pattern that he lives by. When my wife and I were in L.A., we had dinner with my dad. And my dad's telling me about these crazy stories. One crazy story was he was changing kampans, uh, like, like uh, neon signposts or something like that. He was just changing lighted signposts. And he went up a really high ladder, probably a little higher than even this. This is, what is this, about 12 feet? He said it was about 12 feet high in a factory. And he went up this ladder, and as he's changing the light bulb, he gets electrocuted. And he blacks out. And he just falls from 12 feet high. He just fell from the ladder, and boom. Nobody caught him. He didn't have a helmet on, nothing. And then he said the fascinating thing was, he said, you know, the fascinating thing was, he just got right back up. He blacked out when he got electrocuted, but after he fell, like a couple seconds later, he just came back too, and he just got back up. And his manager came over and said, are you okay? Are you all right? And my, my dad said, I think so. And then my manager pretty much said, go back to work then. What a jerk, right? My, my dad, but it didn't bother him, because that's the way he lived his life. He just, he just refuses to be comforted. He just, he has that numbness. He's able to go through the hard times. That's how he survives, is he just makes himself numb. Under the incident, he said that at that same manager's house, he was taking a shower. And in the bathroom, they had a glass shelving in the shower. And as my dad was like bending down, as he came up, his head hit the glass shelf and it shattered on his foot. And after it shattered, he severed an artery and there was a lot of blood coming out. And my dad, instead of going to the hospital, because he, at that time he said he didn't have health insurance, he just took some toilet paper and he just wrapped up his foot and he went to work. Like, but it's spewing out. It's an artery, you know. It's spewing out. Just bandaged it and went to work. At the end of the day, that same day, he had a crazy fever because his foot got infected. And so while he was in bed, he's like tossing and turning. He's just in pain. Like, he just... And so he... The uh, manager that he was staying with, I guess he, they live right next uh, in a bedroom that's adjacent. And he and his wife heard my dad throughout the night just moaning and saying, uh, can you get me an Advil? Can you go by the store and just get me an Advil? And in my dad's words, he said, those bad people, <laughs> they just shut their door and ignore me. And for my dad, it still didn't bother him enough. He just got up and he went to CVS. He crawled his way to CVS and took some Advil and took care of the fever. And then like a few days later, he went to the doctor. And the doctor told him, you need antibiotics because your foot is badly infected. In fact, they couldn't even give him stitches because it was just so badly infected. Like When I hear, hear these stories, I realize, man, my dad simply passed down a mindset that he himself has been living by. And without me even realizing it, I realized the first time that I, I believed that emotion is weakness didn't come from Mrs. Pegas. It came from my dad. And all the experiences of my childhood just continued to reinforce that. You know, a third thing that contributed to 
my brain pathway, believing that emotion is weakness, I realized has been my church experience. You see, throughout my life, I grew up in a Methodist or Presbyterian church. Typical evangelical church. And in these evangelical churches, in an effort to exalt faith as a virtue, Presbyterian pastors often taught me that emotion and feeling are suspect. They can't be trusted. And in comparison to faith, emotion and being emotional was looked down upon. And without an openness to the Holy Spirit, there were, reg- there were rarely any regular displays of emotion anyway. And so for my church experience, most of my life, I have been built up to live as a man of faith. And so that's what I'm good at. I'm a man of faith. If God shows me something and He confirms it, I'm going to go through with it no matter what the cost. That's just the way I've been raised in my church. And that's what I see as a virtue. And whenever, as a youth, I would come back from a powerful retreat, there would always be a bunch of jaded people that would say, Ah, that's nice, but it's not going to last. Why do people say that? You know, maybe, maybe it may last if you didn't kill it with your hopelessness. But they'll always tell you, Nah, it's not going to last. It's just an ro- emotional roller coaster. You need to learn to be disciplined, have your QTs. That's what the Christian life is all about. You, don't, you, can, you can live without those emotions. Emotions may follow, but emotions are like an icing on the cake. You can, you can do without it. And so that's, that's my church experience. And so over the years, I've learned to walk by faith. But the question that I'm starting to ask myself now is, who ever said that a man of faith needs to be out of touch with his emotions? And so I'm really blessed to have Pastor Benjamin in my life. Pastor Benjamin is my spiritual father. Pastor Benjamin Robinson, he's a lead pastor of Living Hope Christian Center out in Emeryville, California. And pastor Benjamin is a very sensitive individual. He's very sensitive spiritually, sensitive emotionally. And so a lot of times, Pastor Benjamin will be like my wife. Will th- sit through a corny movie and just start crying. Or when the Holy Spirit comes and comes powerfully, he'll just start crying. He, he's a emotional, he is emotionally sensitive. And he cries a lot. Yet he's a strong man of faith. I don't know why evangelicalism told me you have to choose. But I'm starting to realize that I don't have to. You know, in Campus Crusade when I was in college, they even reinforced this further. Because in the four spiritual laws, if you ever lead somebody to Christ, on the back of the four spiritual laws, there is a diagram. And it's a diagram of a train. At the front of the train is the train's engine. And they put that and they say that's truth. God's word is truth. And then there's a train car that's attached to that next car. And that's called faith. And then there's a third car and that's called feeling. And so they say, well, if you try to pull your Christian life through feeling and depending on emotions, are you going to get very far? And we say, no. You got to be connected to the engine. The f- you have to have faith in God's word and your feelings will follow. So feelings were always seen in my mind as that thing that hopefully will follow one day. 
I think it's um, got good truth to it, but I realize it's not the whole story. You know, there's a gentleman named John Piper, and he has a thesis that he's pounding into young people. He did for the last 15 years. And it's this thesis. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And so he promotes this thing called Christian hedonism. You know, when we think of a hedon, we think of a person that just does whatever they feel like. They're constantly just eating all they want. They're having all the kind of sex that they want. It's just a hedonist. We look down upon it. But John Piper tried to redefine it and says, the problem with Christianity today is not hedonism. It is a lack of hedonism. We need a people of God that feel the emotions of God. That delight and rejoice in God. And so, so for the last decade, he's been driving this home at the Passion Conferences. When I, was my, when I was a college student, he used to drive that home. Because it was Piper's effort to address emotional numbness and an emotional deficit in evangelical Christianity. And I applaud and I appreciate his ex- efforts. Because you know why? Sometimes Christians, evangelical Christians, are some of the most joyless people on the earth. And so Piper says, no, that can't be our reputation. Our God is a God of joy. He's not up in heaven being forced to do things. The Bible says he does whatever pleases him. When he does something, he does it out of his pleasure. Out of his joy. Anyway, my church experience has reinforced the habit of thinking that emotion is weakness. It's rarely necessary. It's just icing on the cake. And a fourth factor, I'll try to go over this real short, is Hollywood. Hollywood's portrayal of masculinity. It tells you, all the men of the house, listen to this. It pretty much tells you, this is the picture of masculinity. Vin Diesel. Your friend died. Oh, man. Like Vin Diesel, if you watch Fast and Furious, he doesn't show an iota of emotion. He's driving the car real fast. He's jumping over a bridge. And there's no emotion on his face. Like in the recent movie, he's going after his girlfriend. And it's like, do you even like her? (laughs) Jason Statham, Bruce Willis. You watch any of these movies, and these action heroes, these figures of masculinity, they have no zero, they have zero emotion whatsoever. Why? Because they're trying to communicate emotions, weakness. Tough men don't cry. Tough men know how to be calm. They're mushy so. They're rugged. And they never cry. But let's face it. The characters that Hollywood is trying to portray are more like robots than people. Because real people, if they go through the same scenarios that the, the, the movies present, people will be breaking out and crying in the second scene. This is too much pressure. We, we can't look up to the Terminator, alright? It's a robot. You know, the Terminator, you know, you know, come with me if you want to live. 
You know, if you watch T2, right? That's the famous uh, Terminator movie. You know, the little kid's like, you know, do you feel anything inside? What's that? <laughs> But the funny thing is, all the action heroes, they act like the Terminator. Just no emotion. It requires zero acting skill whatsoever. <laughs> And so I think all these movies we watch growing up, it just reinforces like emotions weakness. Men don't cry. I think there's a few exceptions, like Will Smith. Uh, he'll be in action films, but they make sure that they show him and his tender side. You know, like in I Am Legend, he just starts crying and stuff like that because he can't take it, you know? I think that's more of an accurate picture of someone that we should look up to, someone that's kind of masculine and tough, and yet they're in touch with their emotions. Um, a really groundbreaking movie, I think, that defined my generation was a Matt Damon film called Good Will Hunting. Because in this movie, Good uh, Will, Will Hunting, he's the name of the character, main character, he's this genius mind. He goes to like MIT or whatever, Ivy League school there, and he just starts, he goes up to the uh, calculus problem or you know, whatever physics problem that's on the, on the board, and he'll just solve it. Like while he's doing janitorial work, he'll just go up and solve it. And the professor the next day will be like, who solved this? And none of the stu students are like, oh, I didn't touch it. And it was actually Will, Matt Damon's character, that went in. He's got this genius mind, but during the day, he's just getting into fist fights with kids in the neighborhood that he has a vendetta from childhood. He's getting into trouble. And so Robin Williams is a psych psychiatrist that's trying to, like, trying to break, like, trying to get him to use his talents for good so that he won't waste his life. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the movie spoke to the, the younger generation is because it was refreshing. Because the movie was saying, pretty much, that Will's tough demeanor was simply a cover-up for his refusal to deal with his trauma. It didn't glorify it at all. Instead, it, it, we identify with that. All of us, we're we probably have some kind of traumas from our childhood that if we don't deal with, we're just going to be beating up neighborhood kids and wasting our life. Anyway, so my personality, my childhood, my church experience, and Hollywood has influenced me to believe that it's okay to be out of touch with your emotions and to the emotions of others. And these things that have taught me to believe, these things have also taught me to believe that emotion is weakness. Now, I think it was necessary for me to kind of unpack my own history like this. And I'm doing this as a pattern, an example for, for you to perhaps do for your own self. I know all of you did not grow up in Philly. Many of you probably went to boarding school. You guys wore uniforms. Lucky you. <laughs> But um, regardless, you know, there's all kinds of things that we face uh, that could stunt our maturity and our growth. And uh, I am starting to realize that these things have actually kept me from being more sensitive to hear God's voice, being more sensitive to His presence. It's kept me from bringing a new manifest presence into the sanctuary when I minister. I'm keeping myself from things, but I'm also keeping the house from experiencing certain blessings because of my, these brain pathways, because of this numbness. 
And I believe that God is breaking me in to a new season at this time. Just like Pastor Sonny prophesied, God is showing me that feeling and emotion is not just icing on the cake. It's part of faith. Why are we trying to separate the two? It's part of faith. They go hand in hand. We need to break out of Western Greek philosophical presuppositions and we need to embrace what God's word says. And God's word says that God is a God who is compassionate. Our God is a God of emotion. And we are created in His image. Emotion is not a bad thing. Now, I want to pause and say that uncontrolled emotion is not good. But that's not what I'm talking about today. You know, some people in the church, they get into emotional frenzies, but experience no lasting fruit. You know, that kind of uncontrolled emotion with no substance or emotional fanaticism that's inspired mostly by the flesh rather than by the spirit. And that's, those things are not good. And you know, sometimes there will be an emotional frenzy during service. And people were uncomfortable with that. That will shut that down. They will say, everyone just go to your seats. All right, it's all over. Just take your seats. All right, bring up the announcements. That's called quenching the spirit. And there are times where there's an emotional uproar and it's of the flesh or it's of the spirit. It can look exactly the same on the outside, but only a discerning person can distinguish between the two. When we were out in Las Vegas, even on uh, the Living Hope retreat we did in the Bay Area, on, on Saturday night at the retreat, man, there was like an emotion. They were like, it was crazy. Mickey Cho was coming through the fire tunnel, and he was making everybody laugh. Up until that point, nobody was laughing. But when he started walking through, everybody started laughing. And I, some people might think, oh, well, it looks like it's because Mickey looks funny. And as he, as he walks through with his eyes closed, people just laugh at that. No, it's because there was a supernatural joy that was going on. It may have been through people just thinking he looks funny. It may have looked similar, but it takes a discerning man to know when it's from the spirit and not the flesh. So, you know, uncontrolled emotion is not good. Oh, I also want to pause and say that my ability to remain calm and steadfast is an asset. Now, in times of crisis, emergency, war... You can count me in. You can count on me to make quick decisions and not to panic. This is an asset. All right. I mean, if we're in a crisis and you just start emotionally breaking down, ah, I don't know what to do. Like some people that I know in this room. No, I'm just playing. All y'all are tough. Y'all are warriors. Um, <clears throat> if you start breaking down and crying and you're supposed to be going up to preach in a moment. Now, none of the missions teams did that. I heard people got challenged, go up and preach tonight, and they went up and they preached boldly. I'm so proud of y'all. So proud of y'all. I heard uh, Sonny Hong preach messages on forgiveness, and everybody flooded the altar to receive prayer afterward. That's powerful. That's powerful. Like, if you're... Amen. And if you're coming up you're supposed to preach and, and you know, Pastor Marcus is like, look, it's time for you to go up. And you go, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. All right, that's, in that case, emotion is weakness. All right, if you've prayed up, you're prepared, it's just time to go up and do it. 
You know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's like a quarterback who's about to win the Super Bowl and he gets all panicked and he starts throwing up. Not that I know somebody who did that, all right? But, uh, all right, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. All right. Um, but, yeah, like a quarterback who's supposed to win the Super Bowl, that's the time for you to step up. You can't emotionally break down in that point. In those cases, emotion is weakness. In those cases, remaining calm and remaining steadfast and not letting the enemy's voices touch you. That's a good thing. That's an asset. But what is an asset in times of war can also be a liability in the season of building. This is why soldiers who return from war or from a tour of duty, a lot of times they really struggle adjusting to civilian life. Yeah, war numbs you. You see enough of your colleagues die. It numbs you to pain. It numbs you to loss. It numbs you to grieving. And those things are needed for you to get through the war and be a soldier. But if you continue in that pattern, it also numbs you to life. It numbs you to joy. It numbs you to love. It numbs you to thinking creatively. And so we need a good balance. We need a good balance. We need to know how to remain calm in times of crisis. But when we are also focusing on building, like right now, our church is in a season of building. You know, Pastor Benjamin declared that our season of warfare has passed. This is the time for us to rise up and start building and building the lives of people up here, building, encouraging people to dream big, build, build businesses, build ministries. This is a season to build. But, but the, that warrior mindset, it's a liability in a season of building. Because it, it, it numbs you to certain things. So we've got to know how to shift between those. Three things. And I'm going to close. Three things. Emotion is not weakness. I'm going to talk about three things that emotion, I believe, is. Number one. Emotion is a sign of health. Emotion is a sign of health. In fact, a lot of times, numbness is a sign of disease. If your legs get numb, oh, there's something wrong. Your skin gets numb, oh, something's not circulating right. Leprosy is a disease where your numbs get dead. And it becomes so dead that your finger will get chopped off and you won't even feel it. And not only does the leprosy virus eat away at your skin and at your nerves and at your limbs, a lot of lepers, they also lose limbs and fingers and toes because they just can't feel anything anymore. Numbness is a sign of disease and being in touch with your emotion is actually a sign of health. This is why it's important for us to take time to process things. Take time to reflect. Meditate. If you've been on a mission trip, debrief. We've got to be in touch with our emotions. We've got to be in touch with what God is saying. With what we are feeling and thinking for ourselves and what God is whispering into our ears. We've got to take time to be in touch. And in this sense, emotion is not weakness. It's actually a sign of faith. I mean, it's a sign of health. I'm sorry. But if you're sensitive to your own emotions, but not to the emotions of others, 
is not just a sign of health. That's a sign of immaturity. So that brings me to my second point. Emotion is a sign of courage. All the men in the house, listen. Emotion is a sign of courage. Now this is one numb, numb guy who's dealing with his own numbness issues. This is one man speaking to another who may have been, who may have been raised with similar bad presuppositions. Emotion is not weakness. Emotion is actually a sign of courage. The ability to empathize with others requires courage. Empathy and compassion requires courage. A lot of people will feel things for other people. But it takes courage to act on that compassion. You know, the New Testament has four Greek words for the English word compassion. One of those Greek words is splanknizomai, right? And this word is translated inward parts or bowels of mercy. So that's what the meaning of the word has. In the King James, that's how it translates it. The bowels of mercy, your inward parts, your intestines. The expression pit of the stomach suggests that the inward parts are the seat of human emotion. And so back then they believed that you know, the emotion was seated right here in your stomach. You know, sometimes you get nervous, you feel fear, anxiety, your, emo- your stomach gets a little crazy. You feel like you have a crush on somebody and you see that person come in the room, your stomach gets a little crazy, butterflies in your stomach, right? And so back then they believed that these, the, the gut was the seat of human emotion. And so this is where we get similar expressions like go with your gut. And the common first century practice was to use this word to refer to courage rather than to compassion. Isn't that interesting? This word that's often translated compassion was also used for the word courage. You know why? Because emotion is a sign of courage. When you're able to take the emotion that you feel on behalf of somebody else or you think they are feeling, and you're able to act on that emotion act out of that empathy and compassion to serve them, to love them, to minister to them, that requires courage. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told us the story of a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, you have a man that gets beaten along a road. He's beaten to the point where he's left for dead. Naked, bleeding, he's just left for dead. He's in bad shape. And Jesus says, it, it so happened that a priest was on his way along that road. And when he saw the man, he passed by him. Likewise, a Levite was along that road. He also did nothing for this man and just walked past him. But then a Samaritan, now Samaritans were like reject Jews. These are people that were judged by God and the Jews, they never associate with Samaritans because they're just a mixed race, uh, syncretistic religion. They're idol worshippers. So, you know, Samaritans were really looked down upon by Jews. 
And Jesus chooses, or he's either talking about a real story or he's just making up a story. I'm not sure which one it is. But he chooses a Samaritan to talk about a Samaritan who saw this bleeding man. And the Bible says in Luke 10 verse 33, when he saw him, he had compassion. In other words, when the good Samaritan saw the beaten man, he identified with that guy's emotions. He, had, he felt emotion toward him. Empathy, compassion. And then when he felt that, he had a choice to make. I could suppress that compassion. I can go about my business. My donkey is thirsty. I need to get going. Or I can muster up the courage to act on that compassion. And that Samaritan, he acted on that compassion. He not only took care of him and bandaged up his wounds, he put the guy on the donkey, took him to an inn, gave the guy innkeeper money and said, you know what? If it runs out of money while you're taking care of him, I'll come and pay you back. Emotion is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of courage. Only the courageous do things like the Good Samaritan. You know, it's a shame. The uh, other week, a couple of weeks ago, there was a Korean harabaji in L.A., K-Town. He's riding his bike. And somebody was in a, a car right next to the car that hit him. And they were running their video camera on the dashboard. And it caught everything on video. It was a sports car. It was revving up, revving up, and then out of nowhere, the harabaji, I guess he was running a red light, starts biking across, and this sports car just runs him right over. And the harabaji goes flying, and he falls, and then he died. And then the guy just kept, he just drove off. And so you look at this YouTube video, and then you look at the comments, and people are like, that's terrible. That's terrible that somebody hit him and just ran away. But if you look closely, there were more comments saying, why isn't anyone helping him? So the video keeps running and the Harabaji is just on the ground and people are stopping their cars and they're just driving off. They're stopping their cars and they're just driving off. Pedestrians are just walking by and just looking and just, just driving, walking away. You know why nobody helped them? Because they didn't have courage. They were just cowards. In touch with maybe their own emotions, but surely not enough to be moved with compassion to action. Emotions, not weakness. Emotions, a sign of courage. And third, emotion is a sign of love. You know, emotions, not weakness. Emotion is a sign of love. Remember in the parable of Good Samaritan here? The larger context of the parable was an inquiry about love. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Well, how should I, you know, inherit eternal life? Whatever he asked him. And Jesus said, well, how do you interpret the scriptures? And the guy said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it right. You got the right answer. And then the Bible says, in Luke 10, this guy wanted to justify himself. So he said, well, who is my neighbor? Because I'll love my neighbor if they look like me. I'll love my neighbor if I can get something out of it. Who is my neighbor? 
And that's when Jesus started on the story of the Good Samaritan. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is choosing the most remote and most distant person that this guy probably would ever think of loving and put him as the main character of the story. And said, this guy demonstrated love. Which of the three guys in the story showed love to the beaten man? And the guy said, of course, the third guy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Jesus is pretty much saying, your neighbor is not just those who look like you and are of the same ethnicity as you. If you want to love like with God's love, you got to be willing to cross, cross, cross cultural boundaries, cross cultural boundaries, racial boundaries. And you got to love your neighbor as yourself. Emotion is not weakness. Emotion is a sign of love. Only those who are truly wanting to demonstrate God's love, they're going to be in touch with their own emotions and with the emotions of others. And with the emotions of God. Because if you want to really love someone, you've got to love them with the love that God loves you. Or your love will just come up short. Jesus was a man... Familiar with sorrow, the Bible says. In other words, Jesus was a man familiar with emotion. Think about the gospel accounts of Jesus. Jesus did not numb himself to the world around him. The Bible often says that Jesus was filled with compassion, moved with compassion. He had compassion on the people because they were like sheep that were harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was not numb. He was in touch with emotion. Jesus was a man of emotion. Actually, the word compassion, if you break it down, it pretty much means to enter sympathetically into someone else's sorrow or pain. Passion. Meaning suffering, pain. Compassion means entering into someone else's pain and suffering. Someone else who has been struggling and fighting a disease. Someone else who has gone through all kinds of terrible abuse. Compassion. Jesus was a man of compassion. In fact, you all all know that Luke 11.35 tells us that Jesus went to the the tomb of Lazarus. And what does it say? Jesus wept. I mean, a lot of scholars are going, why did he do that? Why did Jesus weep? Jesus already demonstrates in the gospel account that he was planning to raise Lazarus from the dead. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did he pause when he got to the tomb and start crying? Hey, Jesus, what, why are you crying for? Stop your crying, Jesus. You got to be tough. You got to show them Pharisees that you're the real thing. Show them the miraculous resurrection power you got inside. No, Jesus said, man, leave me alone. I'm going to cry right now. 
Lazarus. I don't know how he cried, but he cried. Bible also says that when he was approaching the city of Jerusalem, get this, this is, trips you out. He wept over the city. This is the very Jesus that's going to judge and destroy the city later on. And yet, he took a moment and he wept over the city. He said, how I've longed to bring you under, but you will not have it. If you really read the Bible, you will realize that Jesus was a man of emotion. Now, if emotion is weakness, then we are accusing Jesus of being weak. And let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus was not weak. Jesus was not weak. Jesus was a man of emotion. On the night he was, on the, on the day before he was crucified, he was betrayed by one of his disciples. In the morning he was about to be crucified, the disciple that adamantly said, I will never leave you, I will never let them kill you, denied him three times. Jesus didn't numb himself when he was going through all that. He felt all the emotion. The emotion of rejection. The emotion of betrayal. You ever feel betrayal? Jesus knows betrayal. He felt the abandonment. Jesus wasn't weak. When he stood before Pilate, he was bold. When the high priest came and punched him in the mouth, he was bold. A weak man would have been like, I'm going to punch you back. Come over here. Forget this crucifixion. Forget this salvation thing. I'm going to kill you right now. Come here. <laughs> now Jesus remained calm in fulfillment of his mission. That he would be like a sheep before its shearers. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he would remain silent. He was taking the sins of the world. He was taking your sins upon himself. He needed to remain silent. Jesus wasn't weak. Before they took him to the cross, they whipped him 39 times across his back. And some people, they didn't, they didn't survive the 39 lashes. The 40 minus 1. But Jesus, after getting whipped, he got up and he carried his own cross. In fact, to show how physically different, difficult it was, he couldn't even finish carrying his own cross. He had to get a stranger to come in and help him. The Bible could have left that out. But that's the, Bible, that's the Bible's way of saying what Jesus was going through at that hour. It was all real and he was fully there and it was not easy. And they took him to the hill of Calvary and they put nails through his hands, nails through his feet. Jesus is not weak. And the most profound thing I find about the cross is what Jesus said right before his dying moments. On the cross, he cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which translated means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the picture of a savior 
that's just going through the motions. That's just numb to everything. And just like, let me get, let me get this cross finished with. All right, nail me. All right, good. All right, get my other hand. All right, let me, all right, bleed a little bit. All right, I'm going to be, be humiliated a little bit. Let me get through this. No, this is a picture of a savior that was fully there. In touch with his physical pain. In touch with his emotional pain. And in touch with even the pain, the emotion of feeling abandoned. Not by his disciples, but abandoned by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that anointing of the Holy Spirit that has been so sweet throughout my public ministry, why has that lifted? Why have you taken your spirit from me? Father, where are you? Father, why do I feel like so distant from you? He felt it all. The emotion, it was, he felt it all. His emotion is not weakness. That's not something a weak man can get through. And so this is what uh, I'm starting to conclude. Is... When we as God's people, we access our emotions and the emotions of others. When we are in touch with emotion, we're actually accessing, we're able to access more of his presence. Because God is a God of compassion. He's a God of emotion. It's not uncontrolled emotion. If it was uncontrolled emotion, we'd all be dead by now. But he's a God who is slow to anger and rich in compassion and love. I want to define for you today that to be spiritual involves being emotional. Emotional, not in the frenzied, out of control, fanatical way, but emotional in terms of being a man of faith who knows how to connect to the heart. To your own heart, to the heart of others, and to the heart of God. Spiritual involves emotional. Faith involves feeling. They're not always neatly separated. They come together. And we need to define a picture of spirituality in this generation that is more holistic than the one that the Western philosopher, Western philosophy influenced Christian theology has given us. Amen? Amen. All right. I want to take this time. I'm going to ask you for a moment to pray for me. Pray for me. Thus far in my Christian walk, I've been a man of faith. But before you, I'm making myself vulnerable. I want to ask you to pray for me that I will learn to. I'm not going to be all emotional, sensitive all the time, all right? That's just, once again, that's not my personality. But for me to not look down on it anymore, for me to embrace it where it's appropriate. And I want you to pray for me to not just be a man of faith, but that God will teach me in this season what it means to be a man of emotion, a man of compassion. A man that's in touch with God's presence. A man that's able to sense 
what breaks his heart, what's on his heart. Can you just pray for me in that way? I just really appreciate that. You just take a moment and just pray for me. I'll just receive that prayer.